Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform, a time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's conversational corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. This episode's topic, the U.S. Army. From the end of the Civil War in 1865 to America's entry into the First World War in 1917, with the brief exception of the Spanish-American War, the United States fought no great national conflicts or major wars. Its army was shrunk down to a bare minimum and few served or knew much about the army after the surrender at Appomattox. Yet this same army was charged with Herculean tasks to rebuild the nation through reconstruction and memory, conquer the remainder of the continental frontier, carve out an American imperial sphere, and by the end, participate in the bloody, bloodiest and largest modern war yet seen. With me today to discuss how the Army faced these challenges is Professor Wayne Shea of, U- of the U.S. Naval Academy. Wayne, welcome. Hey, Avi, thanks so much for having me. Pleasure's all mine. So let's uh, start with the basic baseline of uh, what we're going to be talking about. What was the United States Army for before the Civil War? What were its missions, its goals, uh, and how was it seen? And what was the United States Army seen as, what purposes were it seen seen as serving after the war and before American entry uh, into the European War? Okay, so um, first off, let me just preface my comments. Nothing I say here is, is should be construed as, as any sort of official statement by my employer. <laughs> so it, this is all just, just based on my kind of academic expertise. Um, in terms of your question, which is a great one, the, the pre-Civil War American army is basically has um, a series of, of, of important, uh, but perhaps modest tasks, depending, well, no, maybe not so modest, depending on how you look at it. Uh, its first and perhaps most important job uh, is to basically uh, suppress resistance to white American settlement, uh, I guess white and black American settlement, if you include the expansion of slavery uh, on the Western frontier. Obviously, you have lots of Native American uh, tribes that are are not enthusiastic about this, to say the least. And the Army's perhaps most important role is is basically managing that problem, which does sometimes turn violent. Uh, It it goes beyond that. Frequently, the the Army is also the only representative of federal authority. So a lot of times in terms of maintaining order amongst white settlers, for example, the Army basically has that that mission. The other uh, major uh, task of the the Army is to basically protect the United States, uh, not against Native American tribes, uh, but against other uh, nation-state powers, whether in the Western Hemisphere or outside of the Western Hemisphere. So this 
manifests itself uh, in the form of things like manning coastal fortifications. Um, it can also turn more aggressive depending on American foreign policy. So for example, the Mexican War, the Polk administration decides to, to wage what is essentially an aggressive war of, of territorial contest, uh, conquest. Um, and the army basically is the one that has to do that because in that case, they are fighting an actual nation state you know that there is a mexican government uh the, the, the kind of the conception that we have it it has an army that's uniformed um the the army needs to do things in this case capture the mexican capital in order to kind of force a certain negotiating pattern and so that's part of uh that's part of what the army does um you've got the the interregnum of the Civil War, obviously, which is a special case. But after the Civil War, at least in its immediate aftermath, um, the army in many ways goes back to these kinds of regular missions. Obviously, the Indian Wars are not over yet um, in terms of, of frontier violence. Um, also, you still have issues with uh, European powers, um, the kind of the, the whole uh, deployment of U.S. forces to the Mexican border uh, because of, the, of kind of French meddling down there. You know, those things are still uh, certainly in play, although the distinguishing difference of Reconstruction and that, that period is there, the army has a more direct role in basically attempting to impose a post-war, post-Civil War political order down there in the form of supporting Reconstruction state governments, which also includes even a period of, of kind of outright military governance. So those are kind of its, um, you know, kinds of its main missions immediately before, immediately after the Civil War. Great. That, uh, that's an excellent introduction. So let's uh, dive into the question of Reconstruction, which is, uh, I think, a subject that was until recently quite neglected or kind of left behind compared to the, the glorious uh, stories of uh, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the World War II, because it was a, a very messy story. But nevertheless, it was a very important story, and the Army played a very important role in it. So I would like to ask you, we know... Uh, most people who study Reconstruction or learn about it somewhat, they know about Andrew Johnson, they know about General Grant, who served, who then became president. We know about the radical Republicans. But what about the people on the ground, the, the military governors, uh, the, the, the regular soldiers who stayed? Uh, how, how did they view their role uh, in this effort? Did they think, well, we're going to be here practically forever because the racial conflict is just too much? Or they're saying, Look, we just need to rebuild it enough so that they get along and nobody suppresses every uh, and nobody suppresses uh, the rights of Black Americans, or was it uh, a mix? I would say it was a mix, uh, but uh, but a mix, but where uh, but such an ambivalent mix, and I'll try to explain that shortly. That uh, that 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 ambivalence helps explain why so-called radical reconstruction, you know, meaning kind of a, a reconstruction policy that aims at a more ambitious remaking of Southern society that would allow for greater civil rights to African Americans, a greater degree of, of legal and social equality. Um, you know, that's a very heavy lift. Um, and so if you don't have sort of full commitment to that, it's going to be very hard to do. And you certainly don't have that uh, within, within kind of the Army Officer Corps. There, there are a variety of things that are kind of go into this. One, there is some diversity of opinion, I would say. Um, you know, uh, people like Oel Howard is, was, you know, was an outright 
who's later a Civil War general, head of the Freedmen's Bureau. He's sort of an outright pre-war abolitionist. You certainly have uh, army officers like Philip Sheridan who are more willing to take a harder line against former Confederates. Uh, sometimes it's a question of temperament. Uh, sometimes it's a question of, of kind of ideolog ideological predilection. Uh, but you also have the reverse, too. So there, there's, there's some diversity on the ground with regards to that. Um, but the structure, the, the bigger structural impediment, though, uh, is that uh, Americans as a whole are uh, Anglo-American political culture, for lack of a better term, going back to the colonial period, is deeply distrustful of kind of overt military governance, for lack of a better term. And if you're going to do uh, these kinds of uh, uh, more ambitious policies, uh, like making sure African Americans are able to vote and things like that, you're going to have to have a graded exercise of federal military power. And that really is, in many ways, runs contrary to, to most of the precedents of American history. Um, and, and that manifests itself in things like an absence of resources, um, uh, the kind of relatively small deployments of troops, uh, the, the wrong types of troops. Um, you do have moments when the federal mil the federal authorities kind of flex, really. Uh, things like suppression of the Ku Klux Klan in South Carolina, where basically Grant says, enough is enough, right? Uh, but when we're talking about kind of lower-scale political terrorism, which is a huge problem in the post-Civil War South, uh, that's that requires to, to get a grip on that would have required a much larger and more ambitious military deployment, one that Congress would have been deeply reluctant to support, and which and, and which also American citizen soldiers would have themselves been kind of reluctant to be engaging in those kinds of duties, um, and a professional officer corps uh, that going back to the antebellum period always realized that they were to some degree objects of suspicion by civilian authorities and therefore partly out of sort of professional self-preservation usually tried to cultivate a non-partisan image um, and that is pretty deeply ingrained in kind of the the cultural ethos of officer corps as a whole and that in turn also makes them also quite frankly reluctant to engage in in actions that are more overtly political overtly partisan um, and then I'll layer on top of that, like most military officers, U.S. Army officers are little c conservative, for lack of a better term. Right? They don't. They're just frequently distrustful of, of ambitious social change. They're and, and, you know distrustful of kind of any kind of revolutionary notions of, of social transformation. And all of these things kind of contribute to uh, to what, in many ways, is is not a, um, a you know. Uh, not a surprising outcome, which is that military reconstruction really has a, a relatively short uh, expiration date. Okay. Uh, given the, the deep distrust that uh, Americans and even American soldiers had in the army, um, after the war was over, uh, somebody had to fill the ranks, somebody had to rise up in the ranks. Uh, to do the jobs uh, that the army needed doing. So is there a type of person or region uh, that uh, disproportionately, quote unquote, stayed behind or tried to enlist in the army either uh, out of a sense of adventure or out of a sense of patriotism or out of a desire of social mobility? How did the, how did the federal army uh, manage to maintain itself given uh, 
such an atmosphere and indeed given the uh, the the ugly back and forth uh, over reconstruction so one thing I mean one thing I want to impress upon your listeners um, is is we have a very our, the current American military is an all-volunteer force uh, that is pretty substantial and sizable um, and it actually has fairly high enlistment standards and has in many ways uh, compensation packages that that have to allow it to compete in the open labor market um, uh, and also we have nowadays this kind of cultural thing where we tend to, to think of, of American service members as, as uh, sort of almost default de facto heroes for better or for worse. So uh, the 19th century army is not like that. The 19th century army is, is, uh, is in many ways recruited from the most desperate members of society. Um, is, it's, it, and, and Americans, uh, the American state can get away with this because uh, it, it's very small. Uh, it's not very large. Um, it, it's uh, you know depending on the exact time period you're looking at, it's frequently uh, uh, kind of uh, staffed by immigrants. Um, uh, I'll give you one example, for example, uh, and this is more this is actually more of a pre-Civil War thing, although maybe it survives into the post-war period. I'm not sure, but uh, but before the Civil War, um, the British are, are are frequently cranky with the United States because um, British members of British regiments will desert. Uh, because they want to escape. I think that British Army's enlistment terms are something like 20 years. So they'll basically abscond, they'll desert, they'll cross the border, and they'll enlist in the U.S. Army, which is which would, in the pre-Civil War period, I think is a three-year term of enlistment, right? And, um, and uh, you know, this is, this is not... Uh, in, a career as an enlisted soldier is, is really not very appealing in many ways. It's, it's not actually a path to social mobility. Uh, there's no, uh, Congress fights the pre-Civil War officer corps a lot because Congress is, is sort of influenced by Jacksonian America. So there's frequently questions that Congress asks, like why don't you make sure more non-commissioned officers have a pathway to a commissioned, uh, uh, you know, to become officers and the, and the army officer corps who just middle class uh, in kind of the 19th century, the term is sort of genteel, is very resistant to that. Um, and, and in many ways successfully hinders any kind of attempt to to produce you know, what we would recognize as a system of social mobility. It's um, the, the officer corps is respectable. The officer corps is, is they're seeing as middle-class professionals. Um, um, so now that we've gone over that question, uh, one of the things that uh, has uh, interested me, I know, for instance, that uh, uh, the placement and location and size of, uh, of forts and schools can often uh, really uh, develop a region or really uh, cultivate institutions and in elites. I know, for instance, that after World War II, um, many of the bases were disproportionately placed in the South, and that led to... Uh, a large, uh, large number of Southerners uh, enlisting in the army, and also in that region, developing. So, what was the uh, the general uh, dispersion of uh, of such uh, buildings and structures uh, around the country uh, during this period? Okay, so and you know throughout the uh, the nineteenth century, the army's uh, forts basically follow the track of settlement. 
Uh, so because uh, and, and therefore it sort of has a lot of importance because not just do you need to kind of provide frontier security against hostile indigenous tribes. Uh, a lot of times also the army is sort of the leading edge of, of the federal government in terms of managing things like uh, uh, distribution of land, but also economic development. A lot of times in, in the frontier, uh, federal contracts are important uh, for kind of the local economy. And these early posts, although they're usually very small, are very important. Uh, that's going to continue to be the case, uh, obviously, after the Civil War. Um, and obviously, that's going to play a major role in things like the expansion of railroads and things like that. Uh, what happens, though, is after the, the close of the so-called Indian Wars, uh, there is going to be a significant consolidation of a lot of these forts and posts uh, as the army attempts to kind of move beyond its prior constabulary mission. And a lot, of, a lot of that will be driven by the desire to sort of concentrate forces in, in larger, uh, larger posts that would allow for larger unit training, which was honestly an issue that the army always struggled throughout the 19th century. Um, for example, one of the reasons the Mexican War is noticeable, the opening campaigns is, are, is that uh, in, in northern Mexico under, under uh, Zachary Taylor, is that much of the ar regular army is actually concentrated for the first time. It gets an opportunity to train together. And so it has this kind of abnormal moment of, of, uh, of cohesion going into that war. But for the most part, the army isn't able to do that uh, until, until basically the issue of, of, of the so-called Indian Wars is resolved. Okay. Um, what about uh, schools, uh, places for training officers, uh, for preparing, uh, for instance, uh, one of the big issues and things that uh, Americans seriously struggled over was even just writing the official American history of the Civil War, for instance, and that was often done at places like West Point. How did that uh, develop and evolve over this period? Uh, I guess the most important, well, maybe not the most important, but one of the most important uh, schools is going to be the one at Fort Leavenworth. Uh, so, and that's that's an interesting story because that's kind of a, uh, Leavenworth in Kansas was always a, a very important post in terms of kind of part of the logistical tale uh, for the other, for, for more further advanced army posts in the late 19th century. Uh, and its importance as an installation is then sort of carried over when Sherman begins to, to try to, uh, basically create more uh, regularized and standardized training sort of post you know uh, you know things for sort of mid-grade officers not just the, the training that that uh, West Point cadets get before commissioning he chooses Leavenworth as the, as the place to do that uh, and and in many ways Leavenworth is the obvious place to do that because it, it has this sort of connection to the prior uh, uh, Indian fighting army so to speak the other important school is Carlisle Barracks, uh, which is going to be where the Army War College is. And that, again, is another place that has uh, actually has a connection to uh, the kind of the American wars against against these uh, indigenous tribes, because it's also the location of the Carlisle Boarding School. Right. So there's which is a, a boarding school for for um, indigenous students. So. Uh, and, and they've, been, they've been attempting I mean, this is obviously a, a thorny issue. Right. This whole issue of, of boarding schools. Um, but. Um, but you see, actually, there's a connection there with with Carlisle Barracks, which is which is in Pennsylvania, if not everyone knows. And the Army War College is still is still located there. Okay, so that's the situation um, during Indian uh, during the uh, removal of the Indians uh, and American settlement, and then moving over to consolidation. 
Uh, but in the second half of our period, uh, starting in the 1890s, America starts to become an open, uh, unapologetic, uh, even if conflicted, empire. Uh, you have the annexation uh, of Hawaii uh, through uh, conspiracy and a coup. You have the uh, conquest of uh, many Spanish, form, f Spanish territories, uh, Cuba and Puerto Rico and the Philippines, areas which are not uh, planned for American uh, mass settlement uh, and clearing out of the population, ex exp expulsion of the population, uh, but which, on the other hand, many Americans want to hold on to. So how does the how does the U.S. Army, used as it is to, as you said, this uh, a system where uh, the the army usually has to be very small, military governance is not something we like, uh, and we're generally here about making life as pleasant as possible for the civilians and just staying out of sight. Um, it, it is a big change, although there are, I would also say, kind of odd continuities. Uh, I think the most important continuity is in the Philippines, uh, where you have um, frequently army officers who had served at the tail end of the Indian Wars, who now have to put down this kind of mass Filipino insurgency. Um, and uh, in many ways, uh, the practices and approaches they do you can trace those back to to that prior experience. Um, not just that, even even uh, in terms of occupation writ large, uh, the famous Libra Code General Orders Number One Hundred, which is uh, for your listeners who may not be familiar with it, this is kind of an important uh, code of conduct for for Union troops occupying sort of reconquered parts of of the Confederacy. Um, it later has an important role in kind of the international law of war. It becomes uh, Kind of, it's very influential. Kind of the Hague and Geneva Conventions um, that occur in the in the mid nineteenth century. Uh, but General Orders Number One Hundred is invoked. It's invoked as as actually kind of a more aggressive uh, occupation measure in the Philippines, and that's actually drawing back on on Civil War American Civil War experience. Uh, so you know, there. But but you're right. I mean, this is this is still different than than clearing uh, the so called frontier uh, for mass American settlement. Uh, 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 um, and so, um, and and it's it's in many ways even more politically controversial. In many ways, the, the army kind of finds itself uh, uh, faced with that. So, uh, on the one hand, though, it's it's a mission that the army kind of feels stuck with. So, big chunks of the army before World War One continue to be garrisoned. They have to deal with the Philippines even after the so-called Philippine War, kind of the insurrection, so to speak, officially ends. There's restive issues in, in the southern Philippines. Some of these things just kind of last until now, right? Um, and so the army has to worry about that. It has to worry about uh, a new wrinkle is not just the kind of uh, constabulary stuff. It's also having to defend these far-flung, the Philippines is the most important, defend this far-flung uh, imperial outpost against other great powers. The most important, of course, being Japan, right? So the army kind of has to deal with that also, which is it's just kind of part of its, uh, its, its new obligatory mission set. Um, but at the same time, uh, I would say big chunks of the army's leadership uh, within the continental United States also would like to have the kind of the more professionalized large unit training, you know, on kind of a European model. Uh, so this is the kind of the root reforms that involve the creation of a more Prussian style general staff, a more systematic approach to professional military education. Uh, that's going to be all happening as kind of a parallel track to that kind of having to still deal with the Philippines. And a lot of that other track is going to be uh, uh, 
um, making the army more suitable for, I guess, what we would nowadays call great power conflict. Uh, I think what what's kind of a difficult question for the army is where exactly would you need to use this? You know, this more European style army. I mean, there's there are theories about things like, well, the Germans will will try to capture New York City and and hold it hostage through some kind of sudden raid, and you have to have this army and being that can deal with that. And uh, and and you know, it's kind of a fanciful notion, but it's ideas like that are are kind of moved around. And in a way, it's World War One that resolves that. Right, uh, World War One resolves that because then you actually have to send a large American expeditionary force to France, and then you you realize what exactly you need that army for. But before American entry into World War One, that's still a much more ambiguous and, and problematic question. And as an ambiguous and problematic question, you're talking about how they want to make it more professional, more, and you and you mentioned the the Prussian inspiration because I wonder during this time, even though America uh, did not fight any truly large-scale wars in this period. Other great powers did. Uh, you had the Franco-Prussian War. You had Russia fighting a number of wars in the South Balkans and also the Russo-Japanese War. And in general, before, long before World War One, all the great powers were mixing and matching and experimenting with all sorts of new technologies, tactics, ideas, and, and organization, and so forth in preparation for a war they knew was coming or they feared was coming. Uh, what interest, if any, did the American army leadership and maybe even the political leadership, such as people like uh, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, Secretary of War, Elio Root, what kind of, in what level of interest did they have in it? Or did they just say, oh, we can take a bit here, a bit there, but we'll stay uh, just like uh, American. We'll mostly uh, base ourselves on uh, in a, in a great series of lectures, uh, Richard uh, Richard Faulkner uh, on World War One, he mentions how uh, when uh, when the army when America enters World War One and they're preparing and what they start doing is they start falling back on training for, literally from the Civil War, the Civil War Signal Corps. Yeah, so um, I, I think um, on the one hand, you have. Uh, to some degree, maybe even more direct participation. I, it's funny because I almost forgot to mention the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, so the international expedition to to put down the Boxer Rebellion in China it has American participation, uh, um, and uh, and the United States is, is contributes forces as as part of that coalition. So that's one example where the United States is clearly, uh, in this case, actually a direct participant. Uh, in these things, and and certainly an interested observer in terms of questions like how would you defend the Philippines and, and things like that. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, you have uh, you have uh, aspirations to this kind of greater global role, but the army never has the same political backing and the same argument really that the navy has, right? The navy is able to persuade Congress to give a large amount of funding and things like that. Um, the army is still going to remain relatively small. And that's why the phenomenon you mentioned, that's why when the AEF goes to France, uh, it's in many ways uh, a force that is not terribly well prepared. 
um, because it's 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 just hasn't been funded and kind of uh, and supported in the same way. Even if you have individual officers who are more attuned to what's, what what was going on. Um, also, I almost forgot to mention you know things like uh, 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 Pershing's expedition to deal with with the board, with issues on the Mexican border. You know you know these are things that are still uh, really more constabulary sorts of operations. Um, and however much. Um, the army wants to kind of escape that kind of thing. It gets it, it frequently gets kind of dragged back into it, whether it likes it or not. And in an environment where resources are very scarce, uh, that means there's not a lot of of um, there's not a lot of, of of resources that can go to things like preparing for a contingency like World War One until it until it actually happens. Speaking of preparation, uh, one of the things I have learned about, uh, I mean, when I started studying World War One, I, I obviously first started learning about uh, the, the, the first powers that were involved, but then I started uh, shifting my attention to the United States. And I noticed that in the preparation for, the, for possibly entering that conflict in 1915 and 1916, there was a very uh, serious fight and argument uh, as to how exactly such a and uh, such an, a large expeditionary force will be uh, formed, with uh, with some people arguing for uh, localization, very again, re very reminiscent of the Civil War, with uh, units representing their states uh, uh, go going into Europe, almost uh, reminding me of uh, how how the uh, German army was basically the German armies, each one representing each king each kingdom. And uh, while other people said, no, we need a proper federal integrated army, and with some people even arguing that it should be on the model of the old Continental Army in, in the Revolutionary Army. Could you perhaps uh, touch a bit on that and who, who won out and uh, why? Yeah, I, you know, this, I think issues like that should be seen as... Um... <sighs> As part, I mean, that's this is really a very gradual process uh, in American history, where you have gradually increasing federal control, right? Um, and so, uh, now that being said, you know, the way the National Guard is constituted, you know, even into World War II, you still have to some degree uh, a respect of of kind of state localities and things like that. Um, but I would say, in many ways, uh, the, the the Spanish American War and the Root Era reforms are really kind of what what really sort of tipped the balance more toward toward more centralized federal control. You know, even before World War One, uh, because of of everything that goes wrong during the Spanish American War, right? I mean, the consensus is the the army doesn't do well, and it. And it and the the kind of the failures of of that conflict vindicate the position that Emory Upton had taken after the Civil War, which was kind of a more federalized. I mean, sometimes there's been more literature, more scholarship recently has pointed out that Upton wasn't quite as maybe as, as nationalizing as people sometimes make him out to be. But he certainly did prefer a prefer a more centralized system. And you, if you read Sherman's memoirs, he talks about issues like that, concerns about that, especially with the way troops were replaced during the Civil War and volunteer regiments. So there, there's a big chunk of army officers who feel that there needs to be more federalization, things like that. And in many ways, their opinions are kind of marginal and quiescent or not politically very strong. But then when the Spanish-American War hits and you've got all these problems, that 
you know, in some to some degree, they're kind of vindicated. The the other thing too is that what's kind of driving a lot of this is that it's not just political preference; it's not just ideological preference. It's also the fact that um, as warfare becomes, in fact, more complicated, um, it is harder to have more localized systems of training and recruitment. I mean, it's just it's actually more difficult to do things like that. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, whatever the ideological preference is, I mean, I, a more modern analogy I'd give, for example, is that when you look at integration, uh, the kind of the end of segregated units by race in the U.S. military after World War II, you know, part of it is obviously Truman's famous decision. But part of it is also that uh, when you're trying to uh, gin up forces for the Korean War, it's really, really a headache if you're going to use these separate black units and separate white units and things like that. It doesn't, um, you know, that you, you would introduce all this complexity in your in your organizational processes to kind of maintain this kind of color, you know, racial fiction. And that's one of the reasons why it dissolves is that you can't, you know, it's just, it's just very difficult. And that's going to be something that is also going to affect, um, you know, World War One mobilization is that you're, you know, uh, there's going to be a desire to, to naturally na uh, centralize this. And remember, too, that the AEF is actually a true expeditionary force. It's actually these troops are going to be raised and they're just going to be sent to France. Um, and even in the Civil War, you still have these home guard units that are kind of like, you know, battles like Antietam, you have these sort of nine-month militia that are called out and, and things like that. and Or they're used in, in certain regions of the country, sort of Kansas regiments fight more in places like Missouri, where this kind of local... Uh, basis of recruitment actually obviously makes sense. And also you have a lower level of technological uh, expertise or, 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 or proficiency you need to train troops in. All that's obviously not going to be in the case of World War One. So everything's going to kind of drive toward this greater degree of, of, of centralization. So that's a, that's a, that, that is almost a great end point, but I do have one last question. Um, if mobilization, if national level mobilization, the scale of armies of millions of men as was needed, both for World War One and World War Two, was so overwhelming that it really was a an incredible logistical pain in the neck to maintain segregation, how was it that uh, the AEF nevertheless maintained very strict segregation uh, uh, during 1917 and 1918, despite all the obvious headaches? Yeah, th this is just one of those things where, you know, it's it's an interplay between kind of the practical prerogative and, and the kind of the ideological or political one, for lack of a better term. Um, and uh, and I would say that in, in the case of, of World War One and World War Two, part of it is the uh, incredible power of, of American racism, to put it bluntly, I'm sorry to say. It's it's. Uh, uh, you know, we're coming off uh, the kind of uh, World War One is not too far away from the high point of American lynching. You know, practices like that. Um, you see this with the way uh, World War One veterans are treated. African American veterans are treated. The famous riot in, in Washington D.C. Um, you know, you've got a huge. Um, uh, political uh, pressure uh, to maintain those regimes. Uh, th those maintained until World War II. Um, uh, yeah, but, but what happens is in World War II, some of that begins to, you know, the whole so-called double V thing, right? Some of that is, uh, you, know, in a, you have, uh, in a war that is, pitched politically uh, in World War II as a war for democracy and all those sorts of things, obviously. Um, it gives a powerful ideological argument for, for African-American civil rights arguments about kind of these basic issues of, of equity and justice. So um, 
and then you finally have a, a presidential administration is willing to to do that. I would just point out too the thing about Korea that that kind of fits into that what I previously said is that's. Uh, Korea requires kind of a quick mobilization again, but on, in a curious way, it's still a limited war, right? So, you know, the, the United States could fight World War II uh, with using a segregated military in many ways because the mobilization was so vast, right? But when you're talking about a more limited conflict, uh, it, 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 in some ways, the, the kind of the pragmatic imperative actually starves resources a bit and therefore forces... Uh, forces more movement on the kind of the, the ideological issue, uh, if, 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 if I'm expressing myself uh, well. Oh, nicely put. Um, and it, it really is a tragic and a, and a, and a shame and a, let's be blunt, a disgrace that it took that long. But it's good that it was ended at least. Professor Shea, it has been wonderful speaking to you. Uh, I have learned a lot, and I hope my uh, listeners also end up uh, learning a lot about this fascinating, complicated, nuanced, uh, and clearly formative period uh, for uh, one of America's oldest uh, federal institutions. Thanks so much.